to the worship team again. Um, don't know if this is public knowledge, but um, Kendra calls uh, her mom, Yo-Yo Mom, Yo-Yo Mama. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty appropriate. Nice job on the cello, Yo-Yo Mama. Sorry, Kathy, now you'll never live it down. <laughs> uh, let's pray together. Before we uh, do, I just uh, got a note that uh, Sarah's leaving for Mexico today or next week? Next week. Sunday morning next week. Okay, on your mission trip. Very good. You get to go see where God lives. So. <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, let's pray together. Father, we do want to pray for Sarah and her team that is going to, to uh, Mexico next week. We just thank you for that opportunity, and uh, we look forward to what you're going to teach her and teach the other, uh, other kiddos in that group uh, just about your love and your presence and uh, how they can be used by you, but also how that you will teach them through um, the Mexican believers there and the people that they work with. We ask for safety, and, uh, and we ask for renewal in their lives and in their hearts. Father, we ask this morning that you teach us to be grateful people, people who um, learn to trust you and see you as who you are and what you have done, and that um, we don't take this for granted uh, every moment that we take a breath. Uh, we just, I just ask you to teach us to say thank you. And I thank you for your work, and thank you for the peace that, uh, uh, that envelops us and the joy that that brings. Uh, we thank you for uh, health and strength to wake up every morning. Uh, we thank you for a place to worship. Uh, we thank you for the other, everyone else in this room of, uh, that belongs into your beloved family. And Father, we just thank you for what you have done for us. But Father, we also ask that you bring to us across our path those who desperately need you and those who need your comfort. And we pray for those who are sick or in pain or discomfort or in despair or who are lost and who uh, live lives of, um, of desperation, of, of desperation for forgiveness, of desperation for, uh, for affection, of, uh, and desperate loneliness. And Father, we ask that you bring those people uh, to cross our paths, that you bring those people into our, our community, and that uh, we learn to recognize them and learn to recognize what you're doing. Father, keep us awake, keep us alert to uh, your presence and what you're doing, that we get used to those moments when we see you speaking to us, hear you speaking to us, and see you working among us. So Father, we give this time to you as we look in the, the end of this wonderful wonderful book, that uh, you bring some clarity and just some, but more than that, some uh, change of heart, uh, a change of, of seeing you for who you are. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know if you've uh, ever uh, heard the word logotherapy before. Uh, it's, a, it's, a tip, it's a type of uh, psychotherapy to help people, and it's, it's, it's built around the premise that the primary motivating force of human beings is to have meaning and purpose. And uh, that, they use that meaning and purpose 
as a way of recovering people and uh, people who are living in depression and, and doing and needing some ther therapy. Uh, it was uh, it was pioneered by this man, Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl was uh, born in uh, the early 20th century. He received his medical degree in, in 1930. Uh, and in 1942, uh, nine months after he got married, he was uh, caught up. He was an Australian Jew who was caught up in the uh, Nazi sweep and was taken, he and his family were taken to a concentration camp. Uh, in that concentration camp, his dad uh, died of, of pneumonia and starvation. And after that, he and the rest of his family was moved to Auschwitz. And there, his brother and his mother were gassed. And his, later, his wife also died, but he survived. Uh, and after the liberation of Auschwitz, they, they, um, he went back into his medical practice and began to practice his, uh, he was, he's a psychologist and practices neuro, uh, neuro uh, medicine. And uh, he decided that he wanted to go back and study the survivors of Auschwitz and exactly what, what motivated them to survive and to persevere to the very end. And so he interviewed, he, he tracked down as many survivors as he could possibly find and he interviewed as many as he could find, and he said that the common theme, the common denominator of these survivors was not that they were smarter than anybody else, so they were, their intellectual capacities. It wasn't because they were stronger, their bodies were stronger than anybody else, and it wasn't because uh, they knew techniques, survival techniques that helped them get through. He said the, the common denominator of all these groups, of all these survivors, was that they all had a purpose or meaning to carry on. They had a drive to, to survive. Uh, whether it was a, a family member inside the camp with them, like a spouse or a child, or maybe it was somebody waiting for them on the outside. Uh, perhaps it was a project or a job that they wanted to go to, and, and a lot of them mentioned God. And, but they had something to, to persevere, to go on through, to push through and, and survive. And that's what he based this whole, this whole philosophy of, of psychology on, this, this Logos therapy. And, of course, it comes from the word logos, which is the Greek word for word. Uh, it's a very important word. Uh, it's the word that John uses in chapter 1, you know, when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Nothing came into being apart from the word, uh, that he was, the, uh, he was life, and that he was the life that was the light to all mankind. I mean, this is, he's saying, basically, this logos is all that matters. This is the, the very foundation of our existence, the very 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 cornerstone of creation. It is logos. So that's why he calls it logotherapy. It's based on that one, or one core. I read the book of Hebrews, and after getting through it, I feel like that's what the book is trying to get at. That's what he's trying to tell us. That's what he's trying to tell the people that he's writing to, is uh, what is this basic meaning and purpose. And this, the book follows this rhythm of, of description and, and uh, and theology kind of, or, or proposing these truths about God and just showing us what God is like and what the Savior is like, and then followed by this admonition. So you kind of have this, this description, this, this, uh, uh, this proclamation, followed by an admonition or an exhortation. And the exhortation is always to hang in there, persevere, run the race, keep going. It's a marathon. Don't turn away. Don't let yourself get distracted. Don't let yourself get derailed from any of this. This is the logos. This is the most important thing. And so now we get to the end of the book, and we would expect him to kind of sum it up, and that's exactly what he does. He sort of sums up this whole message of this is what it's all about. This is what the meaning and purpose is all about. Now, if I'm right, 
And he's writing to a group of, of, of strict Jewish community, probably the Qumran community where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they call them the Essenes. And it just feels like I think this is the audience that he is writing to. And it is a group of, of Jewish believers who hold firm to the laws and hold firm to the covenant and hold firm to the, to the rituals and traditions. And uh, they have come to know Christ. And this is what they've built their life on was this system of beliefs, this Jewish belief. And they have come to Christ, but apparently they are in danger of slipping away. They are in danger of getting derailed off this path, of, of maybe going back. Why would they do that? Well, just like our world today, it's changing rapidly. Their world was changing rapidly, quickly. Uh, Rome was extending its influence. Uh, Rome was flexing its military muscles. In fact, the letter was either written just a few doors, few days, few years, sorry, before the fall of Jerusalem, or just a few years after the fall of Jerusalem. And so the world is changing rapidly. The whole, the whole European, Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern area is bathed in uh, the Greek language as well as the Greek philosophies and Greek religions. So the world is changing. You can kind of understand that need, that, that compulsion to sort of retreat back into your comfort zone. We do it all the time. We go back to what's comfortable. And he's telling these Essenes, he's saying, don't do that. And he's using the, the Old Testament to say, this is what you've been waiting on. This is what you've been looking forward to. That law that you hold on to, those rituals, those things you've been, been holding on to, that comfort zone, it's all pointing to Jesus. And he's trying to tell them this is where it's all going. And, and they, they're very familiar with Isaiah and the prophets and the Psalms. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted Jerry to read Isaiah chapter 54. It was just one example of this Old Testament pointing to what's going on, to what, what is happening. And he's saying, this is what you've been waiting for. Keep going, hold on, persevere. This gives you meaning and purpose. And he closes this letter, and I was thinking the same thing Kinder was said this morning. They say, uh, you know, I'm I hoping you will bear up with this exhortation, this brief exhortation. And I'm going, brief? You know, who... <laughs> Is he saying, is he sarcastic, you know, here? I say, you want brief? You look at Philemon or 3 John or something. That's brief. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is a lot of meat to get through. But uh, I guess if you compare it to some of the, the windbags of, of the, you know, the philosophers of the time, maybe it was kind of brief. I don't know. Uh, but he's saying, bear, bear with us with this. Hold on. And he says, don't get caught up, and I love this, don't get caught up in those strange teachings about food. Strange. These are Jews. You know, this is not strange teaching. And it's so, I think it just kind of hit them between the eyes of saying that, that he's classifying these laws about their, their diet, of what they can eat and how they prepare their food. He's putting it in the same category as Gentile pagan teaching, calling it strange. And he's basically saying that does you no good. It does you no good just to, to, to eat certain things and prepare them in a certain way. This is life-changing. The gospel of Jesus is life-impacting. It is your purpose and it is your meaning. And he goes on and he says, he says uh, that, that don't worry about being outside the camp of Jerusalem because Jerusalem there in the temple, it is a form of slavery in and of itself and believe me, it's under condemnation, which his readers will find out just a couple of years down the road as it falls to the Romans. 
And he's saying, don't get caught up in that. It's, a form, it's, it's okay to be outside the camp. And he goes, don't fret over your, maybe your loss of access to God. In fact, you have a better access to God. In Jerusalem, you have to go through this priest that goes through the Holy of Holies once a year, and you're stuck in the outer courts. Don't get caught up in that. He says, what, do you, what you have in Jesus is actually access to the Holy of Holies, not just the representation in the temple, but the true Holy of Holies in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. And he's saying, don't get caught up in that. Don't fret over that. You have unlimited access. You have complete access, total intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning really is just look at the final prayer, verses 20 and 21. That's the crowning jewel of this whole section. It's just this wonderful, wonderful prayer that he prays for those believers as he leaves, and it, as, he, as he signs off. And we're just going to look at it in, in two parts. And it's actually it's where he kind of clarifies the meaning and the purpose of all this exhortation to carry on, to run the race, to don't get, don't fall back, don't, don't lose your way. He's saying this is it. He gives you someone to trust, and then he tells you why you should trust them, and what you're doing, and, and how you should surrender to that. The first, the first verse is uh, verse 20 of this prayer. He says, Now may the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, um, I love this, that he, um, he begins with this, in this as he close off, it closes off his little brief exhortation here, that he begins with this, this, this idea of who you should trust, that this is who you trust, the God of peace, not your system of beliefs. And I really feel like this is not only relevant for them, it's relevant for us, that we tend to trust our system of beliefs instead of the person. And he's saying, now may the God of peace, and he uses that title on purpose, the God of peace. This is a common theme through the Old Testament. When they hear this, they know immediately that he's talking about the new covenant that's promised in the Old Testament. All you have to do, if you have a concordance at home, go look up peace in your concordance and just see how many times it's listed in the Old Testament, especially Isaiah over and over and over again. When they hear the God of peace, they know exactly what he's getting at. This is a God who, who is providing order. This is a God who is providing comfort and rest. Uh, this is the God, this is the reason why we exist, because he is the God of peace. And he tells us that even in this changing world, in this changing world, he is bringing peace. And we are to be strengthened by that and strengthened by his grace, not food laws or not any other law that we can think of or not any other ritual or restriction. This is what we are strengthened in. Depend on the mercy of God, the God of peace. The Essenes thought they were, they were this eschatological community. And what that means is they thought this was a, they were a community of the last days, of the end of time. So that ought to tell us right now that we're not the first generation to think we're in the last days, okay? <laughs> People have been thinking this for generations, that they, are in the, and they thought they were in the last days. And he's saying, this is the God who's bringing shalom. This is the God who's bringing peace. The, the shalom, we've used that word quite a bit. It's the idea of well-being. It's the idea of wholeness. It's not just an absence of conflict. 
And if you go back and look at the Old, Old Testament, especially Isaiah, God is promising peace for Israel, but then it blossoms out to peace for the nations. This peace for Israel then becomes a universal peace for the nations. It is beyond the borders there. It is a restoration. It is when, when we go back through the book of, the, uh, book of Hebrews, it is the rest he is talking about. It is the home we are talking about. It is the confidence we are talking about. It is the mercy that he talks about. All of this from Jesus being, being enthroned from chapter 1 that we saw, from being enthroned on the, on the, at, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that he is there to bring peace. He is the God of peace for all men. And he goes on to describe, where he's just describing who this God is. This God of peace is also the God of promise. And he said, through this eternal, the blood of the eternal covenant, this is the ultimate arrangement that he has made with Israel and that he will keep. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted Jerry to read Isaiah 54, that it looks like they were, they were suffering from persecution and Israel was in captivity during the Isaiah's writing and they were, they were away from their homeland, and he's saying, yeah, yeah, you're suffering, you're suffering, but my love never stops for you. I am a God of the promise, and when I promise it, I will make it. And the blood of Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, that's what sealed the covenant. That's what made it possible. This is the bond of, a, this is the, bond of the age to come. It is the eternal promise. And what he means by that is that this is the promise of the age to come that is inaugurated right now. This is, we are living in the age to come, and then we'll come in the age, of, age to come. When I hear about eternal life, a lot of times, and we just kind of have that translate in our head forever, I keep thinking, this sounds kind of boring, actually. It just goes on forever. But the way Hebrews is describing this as this eternal covenant, as this age to come, this is an age that's going to bring new creativity, new challenges, new tasks, new possibilities. This is not going to be boring. This is not boring now. It's not going to be boring in the future. This is the age to come. New tasks, new possibilities, new creative challenges. He is the God of peace well, is also the God of life who brought Jesus from the dead. This is actually the first time he explicitly mentions the resurrection. And you're going, what? What's with that? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, he just assumes it. It's a fact. And so even from the very, very beginning when he's saying that Jesus ascended to the throne, he only ascends to the throne if he's resurrected. He just assumes the resurrection all the way through, but here he states it right out that this is the God of life. And it's found in that. It's found in that sacrifice. This is the God of life, not this continuous cycle of dead animals in the temple. He is the God of life. Eugene Peterson says that uh, everything we know about God is life, life, and more life. This is the one thing that we can't do for ourselves. God raised Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus the Son from the dead. Amen. And he will do that for us. And that's the promise that what he did for Jesus, he will do for us. This is something that we can't control. This is something that we have no, no power over whatsoever. This is life. He is the God of life. And 
He is the God of the great shepherd. And what I love about this one little phrase, this, it, it, there, you know, there's so much theology in this prayer that it would take a lifetime to assimilate it. And we're going to try to do it in 30 minutes. But, but one of the things I love about this is how he, he pairs the Lord Jesus Christ with the great shepherd. And if you're a Jew, an Essene Jew sitting back, when you hear the word master or Lord, you are not thinking shepherd. You're thinking Nero. You're thinking Claudius. You're thinking Tiberius. You're thinking Tito. You know, you're thinking ruthless dictators who rule and use people for their own benefit. But this master is a shepherd. This master is different. This is the master whose domain is the care of the sheep. This is a master who lives with the sheep. This is a master who, as the sheep may be going through the gate towards slaughter and sacrifice, he's going ahead of them. This is the shepherd who agreed to suffer in the utmost just like the sheep. Not like the hired man who runs away. This is the shepherd who stays because the sheep belong to him. And it's a very, very another, very common metaphor for God in the Old Testament. So when the Jews heard this, they too would be thinking Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah. I think Zechariah uses it like 14 times. They would know who they're talking about. That this is the guy who takes care of them, who feeds them, who protects them. And he is a master. He's worth following. He's worth obeying because he has your interests at heart. He has your shalom, your well-being in his heart. He's not the hard man who, when violence comes, makes a run for it. He's the one who takes care of us. He goes on to say why we should trust this and what's going to happen. He says, may the God of peace... And then he, after he describes God in all these terms, these wonderful, wonderful pictures, may the God of peace, then he says, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you wonder what's so much, so it's so wrapped up in that, those phrases, those two sentences. I mean, this... This guy says more in three lines than I say in an hour. He says, make you complete in everything good. Make you complete in everything good. We need to sit, for, sit with that for a while. What does that mean? That he is making us good. My basic philosophy of discipleship and spiritual formation is that we do good works because we are becoming good people. And I think we need to sit for a while and say, is God making me good? Or am I just becoming ornery? Or stubborn? Or aggressive? Is he making me good, a good person? That's the question. And that's where we kind of submit ourselves to his will. That's where we submit ourselves to what he is doing in us and surrender ourselves to him so that he can make good. And he says, everything good. We don't wait till we go to heaven and say, we're instantly good. 
Dallas Willard raises the possibility that what if our growth in spirituality, that's where we're locked in for all eternity after we die. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's kind of a scary thought. But he wants to make everything good in us. It wasn't too long ago, well, it's been a few years now, where I was talking with a fellow believer, and he says, um, you know, I maybe, I, I hate to even admit this, but he says, sometimes I wish that I wasn't a Christian so that I could be more loving. Are we making the wrong message? Are we communicating the wrong message here? Everything good. Why? To do his will. To do what he wants us to do. To do his bidding. To make good on what he wants us to do. It's not just for the sake of being good. It's not just for the sake of being pure. It's not just for the sake of having bragging rights or being righteous. Righteous is very different than being self-righteous, by the way. It's not just for that. It's so that we can do good. We can do his will. Working among us that which is pleasing in his sight. It's a little iffy whether he is saying working among us or working in us. The preposition is the same. It could be translated either way. I happen to think it's probably both. That in order for him to work among us, he has to work in us. And he is working in us to do what is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We do this to do what is pleasing in his sight and doing good, working among us, doing his will that makes him happy, that makes him proud of us. Now it says for his glory, and I, I, I hope I'm not being too tedious here picking this, this prayer apart here, but to his glory. And you may have a reaction and say, well, well you know, is, is Jesus' self-esteem so low that he, keep, that he needs us to keep telling us how great he is? Is that what he's getting at? I've heard a lot of discussion with atheists and agnostics. And I could distill it down in one, in just some basic, basic lines. Where the atheist, atheist says, well, yeah, if I die and, I'm, and I go to heaven, or I die and, and there is a God, I'm going to say, hey, I was wrong. My bad. You know, my bad. I was wrong. You were right. And then I would say, you know, I've tried to help people. I've tried to, try to be good and all that. And, and, uh, and he, then the atheist would say, but if he tells me that because I didn't bow down to him and, and, and tell him how great he is that he's going to send me to hell, then I say, send me as far away from you as possible. I've heard God being called a sociopath. I've heard God being called a monster for doing that. But it's because we don't understand what it means to give glory. Okay? According to Jesus, according to Paul, according to the Apostle John, the love of God and the glory of God are the same thing. And when we proclaim the glory of God, we are proclaiming the love of God. We proclaim the glory of God not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the creation and the creatures, you and me.
That's why we declare the glory. We are declaring the love for their benefit, for their benefit. And that makes, that makes God very happy. When we declare the love of God, he says, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. That is the same thing. It's declaring the glory. So what he is doing here, in my opinion, in the book of Hebrews and in this summary prayer, is that this is a serious call to a deeper loyalty. That he's talking to the Essenes and saying, oh, you're loyal to the law, you're loyal to the covenant, you're loyal to the rituals, you're loyal to the traditions, all that stuff, how to prepare your food, all that stuff. But that really does you no good. And he's calling them to a deeper loyalty. A deeper loyalty to him. That's what he's calling us for. A serious call to a deeper loyalty. And so I, I just put together five things that, that to me are implications of this. And we will go through them. We just have a few minutes here. Christianity is a setup for letting go of our need to be certain. We don't need to be certain about what everything is falling up, what, how everything fits together, that when I have a question, if I could just pull back the curtain and God would give me the answer, then everything would fall into place. We lose that need, and he calls us simply to trust, simply to follow, do whatever he, do whatever he wants us to do. The two pillars of Christianity are the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Anybody want to explain that to me? What does the incarnation mean? How did God become man? Anybody want to tell me that? How about resurrection? That one thing that's inevitable for all of us is death, and God has put a reverse on it. Anybody want to explain that to me? I don't know. I don't know how it works. I just trust. I don't need to be certain on how this mechanism works and how everything works. He's just calling us to trust. We have these Job moments. I call them Job moments that when we say, hey, what's happening to me? I didn't deserve this. What's going on here? And then we have the Ecclesiastes moments that says, oh, life is just one thing after another, one cycle day after day. The rivers go in and the ocean gets full and the, and the days go in, the sun goes up and it goes down and up and down and over and over and over and over. It's all like chasing after wind. So we may have our Ecclesiastes moments and our Job moments, and what does the book of Hebrews tell us? Trust me anyway. So does Ecclesiastes and Job, by the way. Trust me anyway. Just trust me. You don't need to be certain. You don't need to have all the information. It's a blow to our ego, but I think that's kind of the point, that I don't need to be in control. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to have all the answers as if that's going to comfort me somehow. I just need to trust even when it's absurd, and it feels absurd in front of me. A serious call to a deeper loyalty. Jesus is both hidden in us, and he is revealed in us. He is working in our hearts. He is hidden in our hearts. He is hidden in our soul. But according to this prayer, he also expects himself to be revealed in us, that he is working among us, that he's working in us, and therefore he is working among us. He is to be revealed before him. The abstract life is a tormented life. And what I mean by that is we so want to get so caught up in when 
in, in dealing with these abstract ideas and theories, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you look at the ministry of Jesus and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and, all, and Apostle John and Barnabas, you look at them, what do they do? They don't give some overarching theory of philosophy or theory of history of why this is happening or what that's happening. He deals with the need at hand. He does good at the things at hand. Whether it's a beggar, a woman bleeding, a thirsty woman, a daughter who has died, he deals with the good at hand. And the abstract life is okay, but really Jesus is calling us to deal with the good at hand. We can appreciate our head, just don't live there. Just don't live in your head. A serious call to a deeper loyalty. Suffering is the place where answers fade and deep loyalty takes over. I wish it wasn't so, but that seems to be the universal truth that we suffer. And the answers seem to fade away like dreams and they go away, but that's when loyalty takes over and that's what he wants. I don't believe God causes cancer or causes car wrecks, anything like that. But it's just the way it is. It's the way life is. But we can find God in it. We look for God in it. Amen. And loyalty tends to take over. And a serious call to a deeper loyalty. By the way, God wants you dead. Amen. I say that in an evocative way because, of course, so you can live as a truly human being. This idea of dying to yourself and living the resurrected life. That's what he wants from us. Jesus says it this way, take up your cross and follow me. Now, the cross is not a burden you carry around. A cross is something you die on. And that's what he's getting at. That our ego dies on it. Our sense of control dies on it. All that dies on it so that we are called to a deeper loyalty and we can live as a true human being where he is making good, making us good and we're doing his will and we're proclaiming his glory. We live as a true human being. I need a, when I come to church on Sunday morning, I want to be led by a bigger God than just my belief system. Uh, I have a doctrinal statement. Uh, when I graduated from seminary, I had about probably 20 things on it. Now I have about five. Things that I think I hold true. Um, but I need a bigger God who will guide me. I need a God on Sunday morning who centers me in on the death, the incarnation, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need a Sunday morning that draws me back to that, that draws me beyond my rational mind, my arguments, my theology, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I come on Sunday morning, I don't need a Sunday morning where we discuss the efficacy of masks. I need a Sunday morning that draws me to a deeper loyalty to Jesus Christ. 
When I come on Sunday morning, I don't need to have all these intellectual discussions to where the dust finally settles and there's nothing there. I need a Sunday morning that calls me to a deeper loyalty to Jesus Christ. When I come on Sunday morning, I don't need to argue about the rapture or God's sovereignty and man's free will. I need a Sunday morning that draws me to a deeper loyalty to Jesus Christ. When I come on Sunday morning, I need a God who will guide me. I need prayers that will lift us up to him. I need singing and music that focuses my eyes on Jesus, that draws me into a deeper loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's what I need on Sunday mornings. I thought a good way to close this series on the Hebrews is to read the Apostles' Creed together to reaffirm this truth of our loyalty to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to stand in the worship team. You guys can come on up. And I'm going to ask you to read the, the um, Apostles' Creed with me. Uh, I had a question the last time we did the Apostles' Creed, which has been several months, actually, about why do I use, why do I include the Catholic Church in there? And I tried to, it's, it, and because that's the traditional language, the word Catholic means universal, means it, it spreads not just from one denomination or one group of body, it means it's, it, or, one, or Israel in Isaiah's case, it extends, it blossoms out to all of humanity, that's what it means. Um, the Orthodox Church in the East is not the only church that has true faith, okay? We're a Bible church. We're not the only church that uses the Bible, just in case you didn't know that. But uh, the Catholic Church means universal, and I just left it in because it's kind of the traditional language. It's how I memorized it. It's how a lot of people memorized it. So let's read it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he would come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.